0: Everyone, I am Kimbra in Los Angeles, and this is Kelly in Rock Springs, Wyoming.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> hey, Kelly, can you tell us what your rant is today? Oh yeah. Um, so this is related to our friend Jeff, who uh-huh. posted something on Facebook, uh-huh. which we both responded to uh, this week. He was talking about um, people returning the grocery cart right. back to the store. So you take it. Right, I remember that. And returning it back to the whatever that little cubicle or back to the store, yeah. And how um it's rude, you know. People leave their grocery cart right out in the parking lot, and sure. it's, it's either sitting in a parking space or it can blow away and you know run into somebody's car or something. So I agree with him. I think it shows a lot about your character, the kind of people who don't take their carts back to the store.
0: Right. You're so true. So, You're so right about that. And I think we had another mutual friend, Craig, who responded and I'll just piggyback on his response. He was saying 99% of the time he does, unless his back is out or you got too much to carry. And he's like, you know, I know i there's been a few times, but yeah, I always put it on the curb or something or like, so that's not going to hit a car. I'm always worried about car door openings. I'm, I'm more, I'm worried about that. I don't want to wreck someone's car because I want, I don't want anyone wrecking my car. <laughs>
2: Yeah. 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 No, it's understandable. There's going to be times like I, I have to say, you know, when in the snow, when it's been really, really, really cold, I, but I put it in a place where it's not going to run into somebody else's car, but I haven't necessarily walked it all the way back to the store. But sure. in general, um, I, I had this friend once that used to tell me, oh, well, I don't take them back because, you know, it gives these young kids a job, which I feel like was just an excuse, uh, something that a lot of people, right. you know, use no, excuses for their own laziness.
0: Yeah, and those guys appreciate it when you, you know, when you bring it back into yeah. the thing because
2: I do go out and bring those in.
0: <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yeah,
2: yeah. So anyway, so that's my rant for okay. the day. Okay.
0: Well, I'm excited about our guest coming up. My old friend John Amore. I always, uh, you always wanted to know more about John Amore. I know you
2: did. I've always wanted to know more <laughs> about John Amore. Inquiring um, minds want to know. Is- you know, he's a really interesting guy and uh he's written a lot of books and so yeah i'm excited to chat with him today this will be fun he's had a, a he's a man not to make
0: make this into a pun but he's had many chapters in his life and uh, you made a uh, <laughs> you've uh, made a cute little montage that we'll show later but yeah he's led a very interesting life and we're gonna hear all about it because john d'amore is not shy if that's the one thing i can say yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: He's a talented, interesting, handsome man. So, right. yay. Yeah. Yay, we can't yeah.
0: wait. So, John, uh, welcome to uh, Kelly and Kimbra in the moment.
1: Good afternoon or evening, whenever you uh, show this. Uh, have a, and and uh, hello to both of you.
2: Hey,
0: hello, <clears> hello. <throat> hello.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I'm so yeah. used to seeing you in the hot tub. Where's the hot tub?
1: Um, I'm not going to, uh, have put my, bring my laptop out to the hot tub for a handful of reasons. Uh, (laughs) Being electrocuted, is probably one of them. Right. Uh, (laughs) Don't want that. But you just caught me. Uh, this is uh, what it is when I do my readings. This is how it looks. And I just finished one uh, about an hour or so ago. And I figured, why don't I just keep the set the same way?
0: yes you look very mysterious and black
1: yeah. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. nice? Isn't that
2: nice? well let's make the introduction so you started out in the music business and um, then you were a, a not
1: corporate. exactly coming out of the womb that way but yeah <laughs> <clears throat> not well, long, your, not long after youth, not long after, days.
2: <laughs> and um from reading your bio then you were a corporate ceo or corporate executive in new yeah. york city and then you went to Hollywood, and you were a script doctor. So you've had quite an interesting life. Um, and now, one of the reasons that we're excited to have you here is you're the author of four books, and we're really excited to hear about them. Yes, um, what was the you. first book? Where did you start?
1: Wow. Uh, OK, that, actual, that does start coming out of the womb. Uh, uh-huh. My first book is a memoir. and. Uh, when I wrote it, I never anticipated any other books because what author starts his his uh, his series of novels with a, with a memoir? That usually comes somewhere down the line. Right. Uh, but this, uh, I grew up. I was born and raised within. Uh, obviously, you could tell from my book. I'm not. I mean, from my accent.
0: And from your last name of love. I'm not from
1: Santa (laughs) Fe. Uh, I'm from right outside of Manhattan in New Jersey. Uh, I grew up uh, seeing the Empire State Building on a daily basis. That's how close we were to Manhattan. And during my four years of high school, uh, my high school uh, window. I was able to watch literally for the four years it took to build them, uh, the building of the original World Trade Centers. So uh, that's how close I was in New Jersey. Uh, so besides, uh, like Kimber said, being Italian and growing up in that area and uh, my, my family on my dad's side uh, being there since the early 1900s, uh They were involved in a certain culture uh mm. that uh Italians had been known for uh throughout the say twenties on up to you know, the seventies early eighties and uh, certainly I was not uh uh one of those guys. Uh, but I certainly grew up in that fa- in that family and in that culture. And, uh, you know, like you said, I went directly, uh, started taking guitar lessons at seven and a half years old. So, and, and took them literally weekly, uh, until I was 21. So for 14 years, I was a trained musician, which enabled me to be able to become a studio musician back, back East. And, um, uh, so, so I had experienced, because I was a musician, and out in Hollywood, where my uh, another part of my family, which I know Kimbra will want to talk about later, yes. uh, wound up owning up uh, owning a very famous uh, Hollywood r- restaurant from the '30s up until the early uh, '80s. Uh, and uh, I was the out... Villa Capri, right? The Villa Capri. Yes, that was it. Actually, they they had another right, one great. that they started with called the Casa di Amore. Okay. And then a few years later, they also opened up the Villa Capri, and uh, but I was out there visiting the family uh, around my birthday in in 1975, uh, which was a great time, folks, to be. Uh, <laughs> 22 years old and uh, a musician in la uh, <laughs> so i could i could just tell you that if you want to know more <laughs> buy the book um but anyway uh so i i uh, on my 22nd birthday or for my 22nd birthday my godfather who was back in new jersey invited me out to las vegas to celebrate my birthday now what 22 year old kid would not want to go to Vegas on his cousin's nickel. You gotta remember, I didn't see him as my godfather, which he was at, you know, from uh, being baptized at birth. Um, I saw him as my oldest cousin, who I just loved and respected anyway. And, uh, And so when he said, you know, meet me out in Vegas, okay. And he gets me a suite at the very brand new Uh, original MGM grand, uh, up on the, up on like the 25th floor. And, uh, then I wind up, uh, being given uh, a $25,000 credit line. And I have never gambled before (laughs) in my life. Uh, and, and, uh, I, over the course of a few days lost $25,000 and every step of the way, my godfather and his friends, that were out there were telling me, don't worry about it. It did great. And wow. so I found out that I was, I had become an unwitting person in this scam that these guys were doing in Vegas uh, that had started a year earlier and went for two full years, which I, uh, I happily went along with uh, just to be part of what they did to get right. this money. And uh, so after a couple of years, it wound up the casino, uh, wound or one of the several casinos this was taking place at, uh, found out about it. And uh, as they say, the proverbial feces hit the fan and people wound up disappearing and, and stuff like that. and. And they took me for a nice drive in the desert and told me to bring back a message to the guys back in New Jersey. Again, folks, this is all in a book. The boss <laughs> always sits in the back. Yes, um, that's John's anyway, first book. So I, I yes, yeah, so I, so this all of this happened, and I knew it would make a great story. And and so you asked, how did I write the first book? Well, I, you know, there's a whole chapter about me telling my godfather back then how great of a story it would be and how he told me it could never happen until three of those specific people had passed away uh, in one fashion or another. And my godfather was the very last one to pass away in 1999. And I began when it was determined that he had terminal cancer and uh, was going to go soon, I began writing the book and making sure that everything that uh, I uh, I was writing was correct, you know, passing it through him, and uh, and so I when I moved to L.A. in 1999, uh, I started writing the book, and uh, I I wrote this manuscript that you know everybody who read it thought was just magnificent, except the people of business in L.A. where silly me, you don't sell a book in LA, you sell screenplays in LA. You sell books in New York City. And I had just relocated from right outside of New York City to LA, you know, a year and a half or two years earlier. I had no interest on moving back to New York. And this was, I had left being a corporate executive in New York to go to LA. And and so I wrote the manuscript. And then from there, I uh, wound up Uh, this wonderful attorney that I and the only attorney who I will ever say is wonderful, uh, who's still my attorney to this day um, for entertainment attorney. Uh, He told me it's a great story, but if you want to do something with it, you got to turn it into a screenplay. I didn't know how to write a screenplay. So as Kimbrough will attest, I joined this group, which I had been a member of. Called the screenwriters. uh, Sorry, the writers group of Studio City, Mm -hmm. and uh, in it at the time were some really good screenwriters who I learned from. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I, of course, then you know had to take specific classes, and I refused to read any books other than if anybody out there does write screenplays, uh, the only book you should listen to is called the Screenwriter's Bible. Anybody else's version of writing a screenplay would be simply listening to ten different people, get ten different versions of how to do it. The screenwriter's Bible, the latest edition, that's the way to do it. So anyway, uh, I must have it must have been good for me because within a year and a half of, starting to learn how to write a screenplay, I wound up having the people in that group pay me to edit their screenplays. And then my attorney brought me to uh, a major production company down at Warner Brothers, who I actually thought they were going to do my movie, The Boss Always Sits in the Back. That was the premise of the meeting. Until they told me there wasn't enough explosions Uh, this is a company who did a lot of explosions in their movies and, uh, you know, it was a true story. Even if you fudged it a little, you could, what do you put in? Only one explosion, you know, they wanted 30 explosions. (laughs) So, but on the other hand, they did like the way I wrote and the way that I formatted my screenplays and so on and so forth. And they said, would you be willing to look at one of our projects and you know, do your magic to it. Sure. Uh, I did. I think I worked on about 35, 37 pages. And two weeks later, I got a check for like $15,000. Wow. And I said, this is a business I could do. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, uh, so I did that for the next several years, uh, while I lived in LA wow. and Kimbra could tell you you know, it was, you know, it was, I enjoyed life while I lived in L.A. You enjoyed well, it very I want to show
2: the title, which I, is you know very visual. The boss always sits in the back. How did you come up with that?
1: Well, that's that's a good story, and I talk about that. That's a that's a chapter in the book too. What? Um... Um, what happened was, um, as again, uh, I was asked by the boss of New Jersey, the man who ran New Jersey for the Genovese family. He had heard that I, again, this was around 1976, 77-ish, right around there. Uh, He had heard that I I worked in a recording studio. Now, a lot of younger folks may not recall this, but back then, recording studios did everything on tape. It wasn't done digitally.
2: Mm-hmm. and
1: uh and so because I worked in the studio and and had to learn how to you know get punch in is a, you know something when you you're playing something but you have to take it again but you want to tie it into the first part that you did it the engineer has to be able to punch it in so that it's seamless you can't hear the edit okay which which you could on tape today on digital it's a it's very easy to edit. But uh, back then, you had to know what you were doing. And if you remember this, uh, folks, we didn't have earbuds or pads. (laughs) We had these big monstrous earphones that you heard everything in. And it was just magnificent. So apparently, he, uh, he had been taped by the state police of New Jersey. And uh, they, they had charged him with everything from extortion to murder. Okay, now this was the boss of New Jersey. And, and so it would have been a, prize, uh, a feather in their cap to convict him. But he was positive that the things that were said on this recording, because in a lawsuit, they have to give you the evidence. It's in discovery. So they gave him the recording, they gave him the transcript, but he came to me and he said, and this is an older guy who doesn't really know even audio tape technology. He says, I'm positive that what was said on this tape, these are words, but that wasn't the order that it was said in and they made it sound more incriminating and I said well okay and so as I discuss in my book um in my parents home in New Jersey I built a uh, four track and then eventually an eight track recording studio in our basement which is not something that is known uh in California in New <laughs> Jersey we have basements and uh and so I had this nice big studio in my house and uh, the guy came over and um, gave me the cassette, which is how they provided it at that time, and the transcript, and and I told him straight out, I said, listen, man, if, if I don't hear it, I'm not gonna lie. I'm only gonna tell you the truth. And if I don't hear anything, I'm not gonna go on the stand and say I do, okay? And he says, no problem. And I realized that I'm hearing a tape that probably three other people in the world have heard. The people at the FBI, you know, somebody at the FBI, my, the, the guy who runs New Jersey, his attorney, and me. So I don't know if I really want to hear what's on this tape, but I hear it. The thing is, what I heard was a variety of ambient sounds that had changed in the background that the average person would not have recognized. Plus, knowing the New Jersey Turnpike, while some of the conversation was being taking place in a in a car, on the New Jersey Turnpike at that time, before they had easy pass, when you had to stop and pay a toll to a toll taker, you get on the Turnpike by getting to a machine take on take them take the toll ticket okay and then you get off the turnpike by paying your money okay I just happened to notice that it was two times in a row that they paid the money so it was when they got on the turnpike and got off then later on when they were returning they got on the turnpike and got off and I heard legitimate a legitimate edits that i believe but now again let's remember this is uh the you know 77 i would say there really wasn't computer technology but what they how what were they we recording did, him say again
2: what were they using to record him
1: well it was called a nagra body body recorder it was a little tiny little tape recorder that ran very slow like i think you know like one point well one point five seconds uh a sec of oh, sorry, one point five inches a second mm-hmm. and and it ran for uh, I believe thirty minutes and then you had to turn the tape over. <laughs> uh on a little reel to reel it was. Oh my um, gosh. Where was And it? So, so there's, you actually hear the, the guy, the state policeman saying, listen, I got to go to the bathroom. And then he goes into the bathroom and then it's the other side of the tape.
2: But where was the recorder? Where was this recorder?
1: Uh, he had it on the inside of his thigh and the microphone was on the left, on his left hand, on down his, uh, Wow. Uh, okay.
2: Uh, That's like the movies. Well, I guess, yeah. <laughs> no, the movies it take is, like it movie. reality. <laughs> yeah.
1: So anyway, uh, so, uh, I brought it to a guy who was actually an audio technician and I don't know if you girls would remember, but there was a time when they had a thing called a um, oscilloscope, you know, it was just that round uh, uh, screen and a line would go across and it would have like a a jump on a scope. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, anyway, we ran the tape through an oscilloscope and every time there was an edit, you the, 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 uh, the oscilloscope saw, didn't hear, it saw the splice. And so he was able to prove that in court. Uh, And, uh, you know, had it knocked out of court. And I saved, that was what made the story happen. Uh, I saved the mob boss in New Jersey, 40 years in prison. And all they gave him was a thousand dollar fine for having an unlicensed shotgun in his house.
2: Wow. But, um,
1: but, the, but the thing is, in the recording, while the state policeman is, uh, is opening the back seat of, of, uh, of no, sorry, the front seat of the Cadillac, so that the boss would be able to get in the front seat next to his driver, and then the new guy would be in the back, the boss has said to him on the recording, you can hear it, it's, it's perfect, uh, the, the boss says to him, are you the boss? And he says, no, why? He says, because the boss always sits in the back. You get in the front. And ah. so I always said, the minute I heard that him say that, when yeah. I listened to the tapes, I was like, that is going to be the name of this book I write someday. And so that's how I came up with The Boss Always Sits in the Back. It's an actual uh, S- something that was Quote. actually said by the boss. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know yeah.
2: that it's so, a good title. It's a really good title and a I, good story. Yeah, D- John, I want to ask you a little bit. We'll go
0: back a little bit to your. Uh, I, I don't know if it's the same. It's the same side of your family, but the um Villa Capri that was yeah. open in Farmers Market. So yes. was that your aunt that owned it, or no?
1: It's my father's cousin. My father was oh. Patsy Diamore. It was called Patsy Diamore's Villa Capri. Right um the 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 uh, the actual story is this in the third sorry in the in the mid 1920s um uh patsy and franklin franklin was older franklin and patsy came over from italy and stayed with my grandparents mm-hmm. who were who only who had by that time uh seven or eight or nine kids. My father was, uh, like the eighth, I think, and he was born in 25. So they came over. And what had happened was Patsy, like all good Italians, opened up a pizzeria in Brooklyn and, uh, and he would literally travel every day from right on the Hudson river where they were, where my grandparents were, um, uh, over to Brooklyn every day and, and run his pizzeria. Franklin, on the other hand, had bigger aspirations. Uh, he became a vaudevillian and he actually, and, and he, he spoke a word Italian accent like <laughs> that, you know, but he was a good looking Italian guy and he was very muscular.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he, <laughs> uh, he, uh, did like a, 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 a an acrobat tumbling kind of act, and always used very pretty women. Um, there's a whole story about him too, and his pretty young, let's put it young pretty women. I don't want to say pretty young women, but that's. <laughs> uh, um, but anyway, so Franklin uh, eventually, around 1935. Uh, got the movie bug and was out in Hollywood doing what he did and saw Hollywood, what was going on in the, up to the mid thirties. I mean, sound was happening now. And um, so he came back to New Jersey in 1935, 1936, the two brothers got on a train, went back to LA and bought, they bought a, uh, a lot of land in the northwest part of the valley which was uh, woodland hills chatsworth uh oh, so Ars- that's why
0: your love of chatsworth started there
1: <laughs> uh, it, it possibly did you know there's there, again lived in chatsworth for a while in uh, there's a whole thing with uh, franklin i don't know if either of you girls remember uh boy i'm saying that a lot um, uh, I don't know if you know, but certainly if you've been to Malibu, you're familiar with the name Leo Carrillo. Yes,
0: I know that. I know that Leo Carrillo Beach. beach.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you know who he was? No. Okay. The very first color cowboy show, Western, uh, uh, you know, a a weekly TV show was called the Cisco Kid. Mm -hmm. And he played the Cisco Kid's sidekick, Poncho oh wow. okay and uh, and but you see back before that back in the in the 30s and 40s he was a very famous mexican actor and he came to america because you know they were making all these movies that they certainly could have used a guy like him and right. tv shows so he and my father's cousin franklin the first thing they did was they bought a ranch in uh, chatsworth and, and bought about 200 horses, not for their love of horses, but because they had a deal with all the studios who, guys, were making, who were making westerns at the time, and they literally rented out the horses on a daily basis and made a fortune doing that. Well, anyway, in the meantime, wow. Franklin and Patsy, on the corner of uh, Hollywood Boulevard in Cahuanga, where I think Michelli's is now, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Uh, they opened up uh, the Casa D'Amour, which was the very first uh, Italian restaurant in Hollywood. And it was the very first pizzeria in all of California. You could you can Google it, folks. I'm not wow. kidding. Patsy damore, Franklin damore, the Casa D'Amour. Yeah.
0: And everybody, who get. was anybody, used to go there. Like I was fascinated about James Dean and Marlon Brando.
1: Yeah, and all those yeah, he used to go to Casa di and then they, uh, there's the story about how they met Sinatra. Uh, if you, you know, if you believe Cousin Franklin's story, <clears throat> he, uh, he and Patsy were in the Casa de and behind them was as people in L.A. or Hollywood, especially Hollywood would know, were the alleys where you would put your garbage cans, where the garbage trucks would come and collect the, the garbage. And there were two, uh, two guys beating the crap out of this skinny little guy somewhere <laughs> around 1941, 42. Uh, and Franklin, who had literally come to empty the trash uh, into the, the, the garbage can in the back, uh, saw them beating somebody up, and like I said, he was a big muscular guy. He went back inside to the kitchen, grabbed a cleaver, came out, told them to stop. You know, go away, leave him alone. And the big, uh, you know, the guys who were beating up this little guy went away. He never said they ran. He just said they went away. And the guy they were beating up was Sinatra, who apparently uh. was messing with some mob guy's girlfriend, and they were beating the crap out of him. And so. Uh, Franklin brought him inside, and uh, the next thing you know, he's like, "Wait a minute! You had you guys were living with a family in West Hoboken, and I lived in West Hoboken. Oh my God!" And then he just started. He became best friends with Patsy and Franklin, yeah. and so that and so just the fame of that caused them to uh, open the Villa Capri, Patsy Diamore's Villa Capri. And I mean, you know, I mean, Kimbra has seen the pictures. Everybody, uh, so, uh, Humphrey Bogart and uh, Lauren Bacall used to go there quite often. Wow. Um, and uh, and unfortunate, and you know, I don't know if you know the story. It was Humphrey Bogart and uh, uh, Pat, o- uh, Pat uh, O'Connor, right uh, an Italian. Uh, sorry, oh. Um, uh, I mean, an Irish actor's name, I'm, I'm sorry, but there were a few of these guys. Uh, Edward G. Robinson was one of them. They were the original Rat Pack. They used to meet at, at Humphrey Bogart's house yeah. and Lauren McCall used to call them the Rat Pack. They'd play cards every week. Mm-hmm. And especially when Humphrey Bogart got sick, they would always be there and Lauren McCall called them the Rat Pack. So as the story goes, <laughs> uh, they're at the Villa Capri, there's pictures of... Lauren. Oh, they had, uh, they had Humphrey Bogart's memorial dinner at the Villa Capri. Mm-hmm. So you can, ma- you can imagine who was there for yeah. that. And, uh, and so at the table, and there's a picture of them sitting together at one of the tables, uh, according to Sinatra, he, uh, Lauren Bacall said, well, Bogie's dead, you can have the term the Rat Pack now. And that's when he gave it to, you know, his guys, the Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, Peter Lawford, Joey Bishop. Wow. That's
2: really fascinating.
1: Oh yeah. And so like, like Kimber was saying, uh, James Dean used to eat uh, at the, at the Casa de Amor uh, and come to the Villa Capri all the time and was very close with Patsy. And, uh, the night before he, uh, he uh, was killed, when he drove up to Paso Robles, up to uh, up north, uh, he was having dinner there with uh, Alec Guinness, uh, who was, oh, wow. wasn't Sir Alec Guinness yet. It was right. only 1950, uh, 55. And, uh, and so they had dinner at the Villa Capri. And uh, this is all documented. Uh, James Dean told Patsy that he was leaving the next day to go up north and Patsy made James Dean a a bag of Italian sandwiches to take with him and unfortunately when they found the car there was the bag of uh, sandwiches
0: right yeah
1: there you go do you have any idea what that would go for today The sandwiches (laughs) (laughs) just the bag you know <laughs>
0: i know i saw the pictures i was looking at it the other night and i saw his uh girlfriend he had pierre Angelia. i was telling kelly about it she was so beautiful and supposedly she broke his heart but they went to um to the villa capri together also yep mm-hmm. a little bit hollywood yeah, trivia yeah. um, well,
1: i mean here's here's even here's something even more trivial <clears throat> in 1955 when we when my pa- okay now you have to understand the connection here let's just say because of the things that my father was involved in after returning from World War II. Uh, uh, Apparently from time (laughs) to time, uh, things, favors might have been done for the family out in California, possibly. Because- This is all hearsay.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Who knows? Allegedly.
2: Because
1: I wasn't even born, but in 1955, (laughs) when uh, the opening of uh, Disneyland was happening, uh, we were invited to be guests of uh, Patsy mm-hmm. uh, and his wife and three kids at the time um, invited us uh, to come to the opening because they were being invited by the that day's Grand Marshal, Frank Sinatra. So we were going to walk into Disneyland. One, uh, So I was one of the first kids wheeled into Disneyland. I was not yet two years old. And um, and so uh, we were out there on that trip for, for Disneyland uh, for the first day. And uh, we were also obviously uh, hanging out with the family at, at the Villa Capri. And my the way my father always told the story was um, me and my father, and I, he was holding me in his arms, were in the kitchen of the Villa Capri hanging out with Patsy because that's where all Italians hang out in the kitchen of the restaurant and uh, <clears throat> and as he normally would because he didn't like coming in through the front door because people not that they called him paparazzi or anything then but people knew that this is where James Dean came yeah. James Dean walked in to the kit through the kitchen door and he was with, and I know he was, he was with Pierre Angeli, but I, I checked with Patsy. I checked with the family. He walked in with an 18-year-old, oh, who's the girl who was in uh, the first James uh, James Bond? Ursula movie? Andress. Ursula <laughs> Andress, <laughs> I know. Measure, it. Wow. 18-year-old Ursula Andress. And, and she was to beautiful, the, too. To yeah. the day my father died, he said she was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen when she wow. walked in with him now. So she walked in with James Dean and he starts making a sam- he starts making his own sandwiches. Back then. <clears throat> so he comes over to my father and he takes me from his arms and says to my father, so what's the kid's name? And my father says, John D. Moore. And James Dean says, he looks at me and he goes, what do you know? We got the same initials. <laughs> and then he handed me back to his father. And he went back to his sandwich and, uh, that was it, and uh, so that's that's my little and bit of hence oops, JD and JD. In, in tribute There you go.
0: <laughs> that's yeah. wonderful. Okay,
1: so so uh, that's my first book. Uh, the boss always sits in the back, folks. You can get it at www. j o n d a m o r e. dot com.
0: That's johnoflove.com. Oh, boy. (laughs) Now
1: you're going to have people going to some guy, (laughs) johnoflove.com. No, I'm kidding. It's John. Spell it for us one more time, John. J-O-N. J-O-N-D-A-M-O-R-E.com. I'll put it up on the screen. Yeah.
2: Oh, thank you. We're going to have it. We're
1: going to have it. Um, Okay. So uh, where do you want to go from here?
2: I just want to mention- well, what, what was also? the next book? What came next? There's more. Boy,
1: Kim- Kimber had something. What, oh, what? I was
2: just going to say, uh,
0: you are, you're a man of many talents, as people will see, because we made this little montage. Kelly did it a really good job. Oh, all did, huh? Yeah. And uh, John invited me to do this music video with one of his friends uh, a couple months ago. <laughs> Kelly really loved it,
2: remember? I the... did. I thought it was a really snappy song. I, I, liked, it. Right, I liked it. It was right part. for
1: the time. You yeah, know, it was yeah, very. tough. time it. it's right. Well, it was real know?
2: upbeat and happy, and
0: that's yeah, there always, you go. It, that's true, and you looked great. That's and um, so now we're in. Um, we're memorized. We're, we're memorized. We're, in, we're enshrined and filmed together, you and I, <laughs> in a video. That is
1: true. That is true. Though um, we've taken many photos together, this That's is the first true. time John in, used many, uh, in video together. Yeah.
0: John, when he lived here, he used to go to the Hollywood Bowl every um, for the jazz festival, right?
1: Yep. Yep. And we used to buy about 50 tickets and, and, uh, 10 rows of, uh, sorry, five rows of 10 people. And, uh, we had a great time. every Yeah. Time. There's
0: many pictures you can find on John's website on Facebook as well.
2: <laughs> but you guys have known each other for a very long time. Yeah. We,
0: I actually read the, uh, his screenplay when it used, when it was called mad Avenue that's yeah. when John was, you know, when I first w- was living in L.A. and God, someone told me. it's Gotta
1: be easily 15 years at least. I
0: would say 15 years, yeah, because when I, I just moved—not just, but I'd been in L.A. for a little while—and someone told me about this guy, John d'amore he's, he's an interesting fellow. He's a really good writer. <laughs> so I remember I went, I met you at Priscilla's, Priscilla's in Burbank, <laughs> right, where he yeah, took all of his meetings. Well. At what that
1: time, right. If I, Especially if I was okay. up on, if I was uh, ha, uh, living up on Mulholland at the time, uh, um, uh, if I was going to meet somebody, you know, especially, you know, I don't know her. and <laughs> She could uh, be a stalker you know, for all I know. She doesn't know me. <laughs> so what am I going to yeah. say? Yeah, come on up to my place off of Mulholland. Yeah. No. <laughs> <Meet> <laughs> my, my, my groovy my...
0: pad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, that place was amazing. 15. That place was amazing. It had this... Uh, panoramic view, three-quarter view, right? Of the valley oh, wow, Hollywood.
1: All the way over to the Hollywood sign. Yeah. If you, if you craned your neck just right. Yeah, so eventually
2: right. you did yeah. make it up there. Eventually you did go to... Oh, a- yeah. Yes. When, I, when,
1: I moved, <clears throat> when I moved to L.A. From, from New Jersey, I had a lot of money. <laughs> I had...
2: Tons it was plush. <laughs> we like that. But then,
1: but then after you live in L.A. and, and rent the place up on Mulholland Drive, and don't earn what you are spending, you wind up in Chatsworth.
0: Right? <laughs> nothing wrong with Chatsworth, folks. It's just that, right. you know, it's but a little There's nothing
1: wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. It's just that uh,
0: It's not Mulholland. <laughs> instead yeah, that's of true.
1: looking at the view, you are now part of the view. That's true.
0: <laughs> but you know, you've really arrived when you live on Mulholland Drive and you have the view, yeah. you know?
1: That's yeah, one so of I the places. Say, yeah. My time in Hollywood came and went. More-
2: if you like the show, go ahead and click subscribe. We really appreciate it. Thanks.
1: I mean, you know, again, it's in my book. Before yes. this guy was the boss, he worked as the bodyguard for the previous guy who worked for Lucky Luciano.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so uh, I was almost born in the back of his new Cadillac. He drove, me, he drove my mother and father to the hospital when oh. my mother was having ready to have me. And he just happened to be the car that, uh, and and he drove it too. And all he, uh, all he kept saying to my mother was, "You better not have my that kid on the, on my new leather seats."
2: You know. <laughs> oh my gosh. So uh, wow.
1: so but that, I mean, but that's the but you know those are the people yeah. that were at our our weddings and our christenings and the baptisms and all that stuff that, you know, Italian families would do, these yeah. people all show, you know, at weddings, we had separate tables, you know, again, it's in the back, of, it's in the book, we had separate tables that had to be set up just for these people, you know, where you've seen the scenes in The Godfather, where the guy shows up at a table and takes a picture, you know, that just would not happen, you mm. know, it's uh, it just would not happen, but anyway, that's, but I grew up like that so none of it you know not knowing any of that even though me and all my cousins had the same bicycles even me my mother and my aunts all had the same washers and dryers and Mm -hmm. mink stoles and you know Mm -hmm. because that just happened to be what was on the truck that week you know right so uh that was that but anyways so yeah so i grew up with it but i didn't think you know anything of it until everybody started watching these movies in the early 70s that made people aware hey this is how these people are and i'm like wow <laughs> it's just like it's just like one of the weddings we used to have you know <laughs> the fbi would be outside taking pictures all the time right right you know
0: but wow. i wanted to get back to your books like your book tour how are you gonna
1: yeah.
0: channel that you know through the rest of the year
1: Okay, uh, so, you know, normally I, I I would do a tour every, I, I would arrange to have a book come out around May or June, uh, let people enjoy it during the summer and get some good response from it, and then take that response and use it for promotion in in September and October, as, as Kimber probably been to a handful of my readings, I go from here to L.A. and then I just start, you know, uh, I just start in L.A. and go east across the country to pre, you know, pre-set up locations uh, that all has to start three months before the book even, you know, comes out. Mm -hmm. Um, So you book these things and I make my way across the country, Uh, wind up staying in New Jersey for a couple of weeks putting on 18, 20 pounds <laughs> and and then and then uh, coming back on a northern route, you know coming through Cleveland uh-huh. and then Chicago and, and then then down and then and then back down to New Mexico. Uh, that was what I've done for the last you know five tours over eight years right uh, So that was what was planned. Of course, come the end of February, beginning of March, when uh, you know, America shuts down, all of that had to be done. All of that had to be canceled. Uh, I was even planning in January to go down to Florida for about two weeks and doing an, a Florida tour because I don't know if anybody knows this, but half of New Jersey goes down to Florida. Sure. Uh, or they've moved down to Florida. Snowbirds. So,
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Snowbirds. But I,
1: went, I did a tour there about, six or seven years ago and it was like you know new jersey with palm trees it was it was (laughs) all all my people came out and this was just for the boss so i haven't been there since so i expected it to be great and i booked this great and this was back in february i booked this great tour that was going to happen in january 11 months later and of course now even now in July, we can't determine will it be safe to bring people together in January. You know, I, I, you know yeah, I'm not going to be the guy responsible for anybody getting sick. Sure. So I had to postpone that. So in order to do all those things, and, and because I just enjoy, you know, from being a musician early on, You know, playing on stage for money when I was 14 and just it being like that for years and years and years, uh, I just enjoy sort of performing for people. So, you know, when I would do these readings, especially when I would do them in LA, I I would have uh, Tim Piper, the guy who does John Lennon. Yeah. yeah from just imagine sure I mean, you guys oh. been, you know, we worked
0: we worked with him on a, on a show that we did kelly and i
1: oh okay okay yeah. then you know tim so i've had tim come and open for me for three years in a row so and i would get up on after, you know after he says his little wonderful little bit uh about me and about the book then he'll call me up and we'll do a song and and i just enjoy doing that with Tim and 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 like and like Kimber said with the with the video that we did for John Dene. Uh, uh I haven't played professionally in years but it was fun to just do this video with John uh so uh I I I need once a year to get out and get in front of the masses in some sure. fashion but now it's been a year and more than a half and I haven't been able to do it because I, I didn't have a book ready for last year. So when I'm, so I need to do it. So that's why I'm doing these zoom readings every weekend and literally doing them regionally across the country. Right. Uh, next week I'm starting or this coming week. I'm starting in LA or actually all of California uh, uh, uh on on Saturday and Sunday uh, at noon California time folks just go to the John Amore facebook page and somewhere on it you'll see a post with the zoom link and a password and uh, which will probably go up on Monday or Tuesday or something so um, or sometime during week the- but anyway, so you're doing
2: a virtual book tour. Yeah,
1: right? that's what it is. A digital,
2: digital, virtual. Virtual. Book tour.
1: That's okay. what it is. Yeah, that's the word, virtual. Just having fun getting in front of people. The only difference is there is no podium. I'm not sitting in a room with 50, yeah. 60 people. And after it's over, I don't sit at the table next to the podium with a line of people bringing books, asking me to sign them. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, you know, shaking hands or giving a kiss, which I hate to say as being an Italian, boy, is that going to be a problem (laughs) when things change. Uh, Well,
0: look at the bright side. Look at all the gas money you're going to (laughs) save. Gas, wear (laughs) and
1: tear on the car, shipping of books. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There are some advantages. So the next book, the next book, uh, we'll try to do these uh faster the next book was it was a few it was at least like four years after the boss i didn't think i was going to write anymore people were just hounding me when are you going to write something else so i had this script that i had written with steve barr uh you remember steve right kimber Mm
0: -hmm. yes
1: okay so steve Barr was a wonderful writer from the writers group uh and we always wanted to write a script together so steve was wonderful at the horror genre and apparently i was pretty good at the mob genre so we decided you know let's put these two things together so the current thing at the time was zombies so we decided let's do let's make them mob zombies so i had, a bunch of, I, had a, I had a bunch of stories that were left over from the boss that you know i just didn't use in, in the book. I mean, in the screenplay and the book. So I had these stories. So we made up characters made up. This is their backstory and this is why they had to be killed and then where they were buried and why they wound up reanimating by the book, folks dead fellers and uh, um, also available on that website. But anyway, um, so, uh, that you know that was just a lark. So so I decided okay I could take that script, blow out the eighty-five page screenplay that it was and make it a hundred and seventy page book, and uh, tell a whole bunch of backstory. I loved doing it, and I put it out just to pacify the the boss people, but the majority of them were like ooh zombies. The thing is. There's an entirely different audience for zombies out there who loved mob zombies. So, whatever didn't sell from the horse <laughs> people, I wound up getting this entire new audience for Dead wow, Fellas. Wow, that's great. <laughs> so, that was that. The really cool part was that when I went back during the tour to do uh, the Dead Fellas tour, uh, I actually did a reading in two historic cemeteries while I was back East, oh, wow. uh, that that have, you know, like they have in, in LA, they, sh- they have one where they show movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, this one shows movies. It has concerts there on the anniversary of famous dead New Jersey people. And so they had me <laughs> do a reading there. I actually did one with Carmine Appesee. Oh, Carmine. From, uh, yeah, okay, so you know who Carmine I know is. Carmine but from,
0: he, well, I, I know from he's our, one, right? Yeah, he's from Rod they Stewart, get... but... Oh, yeah, he, she asked if he was a musician. I said, I know him from oh. Rod Stewart, but oh, I, yeah. I know well, he was
1: in... it, There you go. You know from Rod Stewart. I know him from like a decade before that, from the Vanilla Fudge and from Cactus and from Be- Beck Bogart, Napisy. Uh And he so, wrote... Um, he co-wrote or he wrote he, he Rod Stewart's most... Uh, uh, don't you think I'm sexy? Yeah, and, do, do you uh, think do you I'm think sexy? sexy? Oh, well. And Young Turks. Right, right, right. Yes. And Rod was um, going through his
0: disco phase.
1: <laughs> And you know he probably gets a lot. Um, he probably smiles every time that song gets played. So uh, so anyway, um, uh, I did that tour and Dead was great. And so then it became well, I don't want to hear the people again. And so I I had this story called the Delivery Man, which was uh, you know it is not a true story, even though pretty much everything about each episode or each person's life in it is a true story. It's just that since all the bad people die, that's the only part that's not true. You You know, as a writer, one of the great things is you can, you know, you can do things or get rid of people who just seem to piss you off, you know? <laughs> just so cut them right so out. <laughs> out. And and in doing that, I wound up also making it a uh, a great that it has a subplot that involves saving uh, the United States from a nerve gas attack from oh. uh, North Korea. So wow. yes, and of course, there's love between uh, the delivery man and an FBI agent. Uh, so. Uh, <laughs> The delivery man, folks. <laughs> also available at JohnDamore.com. Don't forget J-O-N- that website. Yeah, J-O-N-D-A-M-O-R-E.com. <laughs> available in gift discounted gift packs. Uh, just in time for on. the holidays.
0: Just in time for the holidays. <laughs>
1: just in time for Memorial, a labor day. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, uh, Thanksgiving. <laughs> you know. so okay so then so i did that and then uh you know it was like well what what's the next book i'm gonna do so then i had this other story as kimber had mentioned earlier that i had written years and years ago called uh mad avenue but because of the tv show mad men it didn't make sense so I just, you know, uh, being the genius that I am, it wasn't really different uh, or difficult to come up with uh, uh, a, another title just as good uh, as long as I have lips. And, um, and so again, I blew out that story and it was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. And it's completely different than my other stories. The every With each book, uh, it's important to me to not be, you know, had I stayed a mob writer because of the boss, I'd be a mob writer. And that gets tiring. You can only tell that story so much. And all those guys, are, all those guys are dead. Or, or at least, and, and the great things they did have been told 30 times already. So then, you know, and I'm not a horror writer like Deadfellas was, but it was fun doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh The Delivery Man was an action movie that was just, at the time, really cathartic to write. And so I enjoyed writing that. And people enjoyed reading it. Uh, they probably, uh, it, it was, it was wonderful because it was now satisfying the boss audience again. And then I come in with this romantic comedy. Nobody gets killed. There are no zombies, uh, <laughs> there's no visible sex, there's no drugs, uh, but it's a great story about older women and younger men in the <laughs> advertising and cosmetic. Wow. Department. I have a friend that would really be interested in that, my friend Lucia. <laughs>
0: Uh, <laughs> it might yeah. come on later,
1: actually, later on in <laughs> next month. <laughs> so, uh, so I wrote the Delivery Man, and it was uh, because I didn't get a book out uh, the previous year. I figured, well, let me get this book out somewhere towards uh, January. I was like, well, I can put this out in April. Hence, me booking the tour in February and March. And, uh, and then the book came, the book was going to come out. I had no choice at that point. Uh, So uh, the book came out, and I had no way to promote it. So this is what's happening. So now, uh, you know, what's the next book you ask? I knew that was going to be your (laughs) next book. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's it's another story that I uh, I originally had co-wrote the screenplay with a, a friend who's actually a friend of Kimbra. And I would assume um, yes. you know her too, Kelly. Laura, uh, yep. Laura Fawino. Uh, we had written a screenplay quite some time ago called Rubdown. And uh, so I said uh, to Laura, hey, I'm going to blow this out and make it a book. And she said, sure.
2: What? <laughs> and... <laughs> Why not? Uh,
1: and So, uh, I'm writing it now, and uh, seeing as I don't go anywhere anymore, (laughs) and I'm not doing anything overly exciting, you can only, you know, Kimberly, you can only sit in a hot tub so much.
0: I know you're gonna be shriveled by the end of the day, and
1: that's a bad thing. So, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I write a lot. I mean, you know, uh, on the weekends now, I'm doing the, the readings and, uh, fortunately filling orders for people who buy the book and uh, who buy it through the website. It's also available eBooks through the website, and you can get them through barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com. If you, if you don't need it signed and, um, and and so I just you know I'm enjoying uh writing. Uh certainly uh if after living right outside of Manhattan for a large chunk of my life and then in in Hollywood even though I had been going to Hollywood many years since the 70s then living in Hollywood for 14 years and then moving to Santa Fe I must tell you folks it is not the most exciting place. Santa Fe? Yeah, well, compared to New York City and Hollywood. um, Anyway. (laughs) What took uh, you to
2: Santa Fe? Why did you go there?
1: uh, Witness protection program. No. (laughs) No, it just, uh, it was just the right thing to do at the right time. Um, We'll leave it at that. I
2: get that. that. I get it.
1: And uh, so. so,
0: um, Well, maybe after uh, we sell a bunch of books, you know, you'll get a little pied-a-terre somewhere in
1: L.A. <laughs> uh, no, if I did move back to L.A., and, and this is for sure, and don't think that I'm not playing the lottery here, folks. Okay. Uh, if I did move back to L.A., I would find someplace nice around San Luis Obispo area. San,
0: wait, that's uh, up north more.
1: Yeah. Yes, yes. It's uh, literally halfway between L.A. and San Francisco. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so if good. I had to be in that's L.A., you know, I, I could be there in like, Three or four hours and and uh, uh, but you know nowadays you don't need to be anywhere most of the time no. uh, electronically and the downside is we needed in we need a we needed a pandemic to teach us that that's true you know? yeah though so I, I i really you know i'll be the first person to say i would much rather be uh doing my readings in front of a room full of uh, again 50 to 80 people or sitting in a room with one or both of you, uh, you know, recording this. Yeah. Um,
0: I know we had to uh, figure a way to, to, to connect with people and
1: this is the way it is for the next foreseeable future.
2: Yep, zoom, hmm. we're
1: all, you know, all zooming now. <laughs> again, and, I, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say this again, you girls probably don't remember this. <laughs> okay. But if, if, for those who can, If you think about it, everything the everything short of the flying car. (laughs) The Jetsons were right on the money. If you recall, (laughs) this is how they communicated and and remember, I don't know if you remember, but Jane Jetson, sometimes she didn't have her makeup on so she had, had a picture of herself, oh. you know? And she had a picture of herself so until, the, until the robot or something can fix her face up in eight seconds. Huh. And and then she would, you know, do that and, uh, and, and <laughs> stuff like that. I like that. But you know, that's much, funny. That's funny. Um, I didn't watch the Jetsons,
0: but I went to the science fiction uh, museum in Santa not Santa Fe, Seattle. And uh, it made me realize that a lot of books that, that are science fiction do really you know, kind of, we Im- imitate science fiction and I don't quite get the connection yet, but it's,
1: you know, you read these well, books. It's, and... it's, it's both ways. It's science fiction comes up with it first and it mm-hmm. gives, and it gives somebody, oh, when true, that yeah. sort of technology comes mm-hmm. along, it gives someone the idea. And, uh, uh, and, uh, there's also people who are working on new ideas that, we don't know about sure. that they're also writing about. I mean, if you think about it, uh, I believe it was Arthur C. Clarke who first uh, came up with the idea of geosynchronous satellites in the sky that mm-hmm. stay in the same place as the Earth uh, uh, rotates. Mm-hmm. And and um, and now we have that. It, we the G- GPS and cell phones and everything yeah. else would be thoroughly lost without that. That's true. That's true. Yep. Well, is there
0: anything that uh, that we missed that we should talk about before we leave you, Mr.
1: D'Amore? Come on, I don't know. Uh, so, let's see. I could I could do another forty-five minutes and <laughs> you know, and, and and that and I haven't gotten twelve <coughs> years old yet, you know. So. Uh, I
0: wanted yeah. to ask you one quick thing about um about living in New Jersey. How often did you go into New York when you were a kid, or did you ever go into New York?
1: That's, that's a really good question. Um, uh, my parents, you know, because of our proximity to New York,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, there was no need uh, to go to New York. Everything that it's, about, you know, my parents weren't people who went to Broadway shows, uh, or we didn't go down to little Italy because every time my family gathered, it was just as good as being in little mm-hmm, Italy, mm-hmm. you know, for, for food and stuff. Um, we really didn't go to New York. I started going to New York. Um, <laughs> as when I was nine years old, uh, ten, nine, ten years old, um, I had uh, I had written a story about you know how like when you, you, you uh, your first day back at, at, at class in school in September, your teacher says, uh, you know, your first homework assignment is, Write about what you did over your summer vacation. Right. And so my dad, uh, you know, was really good with that. It was just me, him, and my mom. And um, when I reached a certain age, you know, that I could appreciate stuff. Obviously, I don't remember Disneyland. He w- we would go to like uh, Valley Forge and West Point and all of these great American history places so at, at that yeah. summer um it was before the beatles i remember that so it was it was uh, uh just before uh it was september of 63 so I was i was 10. and uh right you know write a story so that summer in july when we went on vacation we went to gettysburg and so we come back to new jersey and and then uh the teacher says do this so where the average kid wrote, you know, I went to Seaside Heights, New Jersey, or we went to Long Island, or we went to the Poconos or the Catskills. I wrote this story, handwriting, uh, wrote this story that maybe like was eight or nine pages. I I really don't remember (laughs) about not me going to Gettysburg, but I wrote it about a nine-year-old kid who lived in Gettysburg during the battle. And how he saw everything and what was going on from the top of the hills and stuff like that. So the teacher read it and sort of flipped out on that and gave it to the principal who had his secretary type it up on on carbon paper. I don't know if you remember that. And then they put it on a Xerox machine. You know, so probably it was like a four or five or six page. I don't know. Wow with a cover, you know, my yeah. name on the cover wow. and they distributed it, not just to the school I was in, but the entire county of, wow. of my grade, you know, right. my grade. And, and so that sort of, you know, started my writing thing. Um, but, but anyway, um, It was a natural gift for you then, it sounds like. I I guess, but I I really didn't do much writing after that. I wrote for a newspaper as a musician when I was touring. A local Mm -hmm. New Jersey paper asked me to Mm -hmm. write an uh, an article while I was on the road with them. Uh, You, there was some, I'm sorry, I, I had gone so far off, I don't even remember what the original question was.
0: Oh, uh, I just said, uh, when you were a kid growing up in New Jersey, how often did you guys Oh, how in? often
1: did we go? Yeah. Okay, so to get to the point, uh, so because of that, uh, there was an exchange student that was in the city I was in. And uh, the person, they, the people that they stayed with uh, had heard from my school's principal, that, oh, you want to, somebody from Finland needs a history buff. We got a kid who wrote this story about Gettysburg and the American uh, Civil War. You want to meet him. So this, these people had these exchange students who were my age, who would want to learn about America. And I got to learn about these p- people, mostly from Finland uh, Norway, stuff like that. Very uh, Aryan type kids, blonde <laughs> hair, blue eyes, but very smart. They spoke English perfectly. Right. And so I would get taken into New York to for cultural things. Wow. Museums that I would never have been brought to as a 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 year old kid. Museums, openings of events, uh, Navy ships as they came into, because this, these people who had the exchange students had government passes through the UN sure. for whatever the hell they did. And, uh, and so I got to experience a lot of those things. Certainly not something somebody who grew up in the culture that I grew up would experience. Yeah. So I got to do that. Then I hit high school. And uh, the music is, you know, when I started performing the local dances and stuff like that. And we're now talking about a time when concerts at Madison Square Garden was happening, you know, and the Madison Square Garden to get from my house to Madison Square Garden was literally a 12 minute bus ride right from, you know, Secaucus where I was living at the time right through the highway, right through the tunnel, into the Port Authority, and then you got out. And you went with like six, seven friends, and you walked four or five blocks from the Port Authority to to uh, Madison Square Garden. And I saw Jimi Hendrix. I, I saw some of the greatest acts, the Rolling Stones during the Yaya tour, uh, uh, um, oh, the Yaya tour that they did, where Janis Joplin and... Tina Turner jumped up on stage to sing oh, wow. Honky Tonk Women. Uh, uh, what a uh, treat. Those were great wow. con- uh, I mean, Zeppelin, yeah. uh, it was a great, and so I would go there. And then after I got a little familiar, you got to remember, sorry about this, folks, this is the truth. The drinking <laughs> age at the time was 21 in New Jersey. Yeah. You guys, I'm sorry, I have to... um we got a 10-minute notice here.
0: Yeah, yeah, so we got to wrap it up here.
1: Okay, so, uh, you know, as I got a little older, drinking age was 21 in New Jersey, was 18 in Manhattan or New York City, so we <laughs> would go over there and then started hanging out. Again, a great time to do it at, in the village, in the Greenwich Village during that time. And I, I went to countless... Fillmore East concerts uh in the city. Uh and uh so that's you know from the time I was uh I would say 16 years old uh me and the city were like that and then it when I got a job there in the corporate world uh back around 88 89 or so um it was just like my backyard. So I
2: have to ask you a couple questions because I lived in New York City for a year First of all, did you ever go to Studio uh what is it? Studio 54? Did you? I I was there afterwards. So I went to the Palladium. I was there. Bell, night. Were, I, I was uh, there yeah,
1: one night. Oh my god. Oh you got to awesome. come
2: back then. You got to tell us stories about that. And then did you ever um Rolls on Prince Street? Did you ever go to Rolls? No. Uh, the French restaurant no. on Prince. Street? I have I
1: been know. to one I was at one Andy Warhol party that mm-hmm. I cannot I can never Convey on here. uh, uh privately, I like did debauchery was Yeah, debauchery.
2: the New York City nightlife is amazing. I had a blast living there. It's for even a year wilder at three thirty in
1: the morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh yeah, you don't even go out of the house till midnight. You don't even that set is, out. You know that midnight. is so true. It it used to be
1: you used to sleep during the day and wake up around eight thirty, nine o'clock at night, eat, and then go out. And, yep. and, you can come uh, in
2: home in the daylight.
1: <laughs> that's right. Have breakfast <laughs> yeah. at the wow. diner. So listen, I really want to thank you. Cool. Um, uh, please, folks, if you'd like, go and you could. You don't even have to buy them. You could just go to the website and check out the books. Yeah. J-O-N-D-A-M-O-R-E J-O-N-D-A-M-O-R-E.com. If you'd like to see a reading, go to John damore's website. J-O-N space. D apostrophe A M O R E on his Facebook page, and uh, I'm sure there'll be a posting about where and when you could see a reading.
2: Yeah, and they're worth it. I've been to stories. a few of them. Yeah, they're always very entertaining. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, John, Thank a lot. Really, really nice afternoon. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks. I had a great time. Really interesting. Here's you looking to come you, back. Kid. I want to hear more.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, but not <laughs> the stuff I can't tell you one uh, on here.
2: Privately, <laughs> on maybe. Here.
1: Okay,
0: okay. <laughs> All okay. right, Take bye. Take care. Thanks, Bye-bye. John. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.